0: Good morning, uh, here at Apostles, uh, we are seeking to be a community following Jesus in Houston. And another way of saying that is that we, we want to center our entire lives around Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the most amazing being in the universe and that all the answers to our biggest questions are found in him. Questions like who is God, who are we, what is the purpose and meaning of life, And if you're visiting with us today, you're uh, kind of jumping in on a series that we've been in that kind of centers around some of those big questions in life. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew, specifically what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a collection of Jesus teaching on some of these most important questions in life. And this morning... Jesus speaks to some of the biggest questions, and especially in our cultural moment, some of the biggest questions that we are wrestling with, things like marriage and divorce and remarriage and sex and gender, right? So nothing controversial here, right? We're all on the same page on all these things. Um, let me just say, as we begin this morning, I personally just, I feel very intimidated uh, wading into this um is uh, it, it seems uh, like something I feel totally inadequate to do, and yet i 'm confident that if we allow Jesus to really speak, that we will be encouraged and challenged and that 's my hope this morning is, is that we would encounter Jesus in his words and hear him as hard as it may be, hear what he has to say with us because it is. What is best for us? And we believe that he is the most amazing being who ever lived and has the answers to these big questions about life. Now these topics we're gonna talk about this morning are are controversial, I'm aware of that. They're complex, complicated. What Jesus says here though, it impacts all of us in deep and profound ways because it's not just about these as issues. Sometimes we talk about these as issues, but it's about people. Right? about each of us in this room. It's about the people who are not in this room that we love very much. And so what Jesus says here has implications for us, whether we are single or married, divorced, remarried, male, female, gay, or straight. And so I fully expect that some of us will leave here today having heard Jesus' words, and we will agree. Some of us may leave here today, and we will feel frustrated or even angered by Jesus because we may not like what Jesus has to say here but but let me just say that's okay that's okay because here at Apostles we are all over the map on these things I, I know this and that's because here at Apostles we're a community of people following Jesus but also discovering Jesus and his way of life and and it's a journey that we're on but we're all starting at different points on that journey and so we want to be a community where people are coming from different places and experiences, but that we all experience and encounter the same Jesus. So I just wanted to, to say that as we begin. Uh, and, and my hope, again, today is that this is, this is something that, that will probably begin a thousand conversations, right? A thousand questions and a thousand conversations may come out of this uh, sermon this morning. But it should be that way. It shouldn't be the end of a conversation about these things. So, so let's begin and uh, let's try to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. And to do that, I think we have to understand that we are entering into an ancient debate. Jesus is, is in the midst of a, an ancient debate. So that's the first thing I want us to look at. We are entering into an ancient but relevant debate about marriage marriage. And divorce here in Matthew chapter 5. So I want to encourage you to open your Bible, turn there, Matthew chapter 5, to these uh, two verses in Matthew on divorce. Jesus begins by saying, it was also said, or you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He begins uh, by saying, you've heard it said, because there's, again, a debate going on in Jesus' day, and the debate is rooted in two Old Testament teachings on divorce. So let's quickly look at these laws. Um, And and by the way, I just want to say, especially um, as we're looking at these scriptures, I am relying heavily on some really outstanding teaching by a guy named Tim Mackey, so I want to give absolute and total credit uh, to Tim because he does a phenomenal job, I think, kind of unpacking these texts to help us understand what it is Jesus is really saying. So if you hear something really uh, brilliant or insightful, it's from Tim Mackey, not me. Now, that said, ancient Israel, right, was given a bunch of laws by God through Moses. The Ten Commandments is the first thing that pops in our mind, but it's not just the Ten Commandments, uh, that's just the first 10. There's 603 more laws that God gave to Moses for God's people. But interestingly, interestingly, only two of those 613 total laws, only two deal with divorce. So let's look at those two real quickly. First, Exodus 21, 10 through 11. Let me just read it. It says, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital Rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, I want to unpack that. Before I do, just a couple of things we have to keep in mind. First, it's a mistake to compare these ancient laws to modern law or modern culture. At least, it's not a good starting point. Because we have to remember, God is speaking into a specific moment in history to a specific people. And so what we want to do is be careful not to presume that God should have jumped ahead into this moment and made everyone like us 21st century Americans, God forbid, right? Understanding... Understanding that reality, it takes a measure of humility, so we want to approach this with a measure of humility, trying to understand what is going on here in this moment with this law. Second thing to keep in mind is that these laws do not represent God's moral ideal, right? Again, because these, is, these laws are for Israel, who's living in a very different world from our 21st century Western world. God is dealing with them, in other words, as he finds them. As a people shaped by living in slavery and among a patriarchal system that practiced, among other things, polygamy. And so God is speaking into that world and the, to these people. And what does God say? What does he do? Well, in the most ancient Near Eastern cultures, women were treated like property, which meant they could be acquired or through divorce discarded as such. So God institutes a law that minimizes the damage caused by all these kind of polygamist marriages, So that if a husband acquires a second wife, he cannot abuse or neglect his first wife. Does that make sense? Good. So so whose dignity then is being protected by this law? It's the first wife's, right? It's the woman's. What happened is that a husband broke the marriage covenant. He has failed to keep it. He is ending the marriage. And this law says in divorce, husbands cannot neglect or abuse Their wives, they should be allowed to go free. So, this is the first divorce law in the Bible. God works with his people as he finds them, and he pushes them towards wisdom, a better way than the way they are living, that is more just, in particular, in this case, more just for the woman. Second law, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I'm not going to read the whole passage because I want to highlight a particular aspect uh, here as it pertains to our discussion about divorce. Deuteronomy 24.1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, or some translations say displeases him, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Okay, so again, what's going on here? This law presumes a divorce has already occurred, and it's trying to deal with the impact of that divorce. And the key phrase that I want us to focus on is this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, or if she displeases him because he has found indecency in her, then he writes her a certificate of divorce. In other words, this law says that a husband may rightfully divorce his wife if he is displeased or finds some measure of indecency in her. Now, the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be displeased? What does it mean that he finds indecency? What, in other words, justifies divorce specifically? This is the question that Jesus is entering into. This is the debate that's raging in Jesus' day because it's not clear. And so in Jesus' day, there were two opinions. There were two positions. One position was that displeased and indecency really is only referring to sexual unfaithfulness. The other view is that displeased and indecency can mean anything that doesn't please the husband. In other words, anything. It can be her looks, It could be her tone of voice. It could be how she's running the household. Anything that displeases him. Now, I'm getting getting looks at this point. I'm getting looks from people in the congregation, and rightfully so, because think through. you're, You're ahead of me. Think through the implications of this for women. Only men, right, can initiate divorce, and it can be, if we take that latter interpretation, for any reason, So you can see the incredible injustice there, how that left women open, susceptible to abuse and neglect. Now, I want to ask you a question. Which view do you think was the most popular view in an ancient patriarchal society? The one that said it's only sexual unfaithfulness or the one where men could say it was anything they wanted? Exactly. Exactly. The latter was by far the most popular. And so Jesus, is entering into this discussion. And he says, look, this this view that this is what warrants divorce, this is what justifies divorce, this is what you've been taught, that a husband can give a certificate of divorce for any reason. So that's the debate. The second thing I want us to look at is, What then does Jesus think about marriage and divorce as he enters into this debate? And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, but I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so to fully understand what Jesus is saying here, I want you to so do me a favor, I want you to flip over to Matthew 19. So keep your finger on Matthew 5, skip a few pages ahead and get to Matthew 19 because what happens here is that Jesus is asked about divorce again and there he elaborates on his answer and it'll help us kind of lay the groundwork to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. And what Jesus says in his response when he's asked about this again in Matthew 19 is he says, look, if you want to know what I think, about marriage and divorce and sex and gender, what you have to do is you have to go back to the beginning. That's where he takes them, back to Genesis. This is what he says in Matthew 19. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Now, that's straight out of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and 2, 24. Jesus says, go back to the beginning. He points them back to the very beginning. Because what Jesus is saying is, you can only understand the meaning of marriage, and subsequently understand divorce, if you understand the meaning of human existence. You have to go to the beginning. There's a bigger question behind your question about divorce, And so let me just summarize in three points, I think, what Jesus wants us to take away from Genesis about human existence. First, he wants us to understand that humanity is the physical image or representation of God. God created humanity, Adam, human beings, right, in his own image. In the image of God, he created humanity, Right. So humanity is a physical image of representation of God. two, that that one humanity consists of two gendered opposites that come together. Right? I'm sorry. Number two is that one humanity consists of two gendered opposites, male and female. Right? Two gendered opposites, male and female, he created them. And then number three, it tells us that those two gendered opposites come together right, to become one flesh. They make new life. They make new humans, in other words, by becoming one. And this becoming one is so important. it's so important. Humans come together physically but not just physically, the Bible tells us. They come together into a covenant promise where a new thing is created, into the self-giving, self-sacrificing covenant, oneness of Christian marriage. It's a oneness so powerful and beautiful, and it has the capacity, it has the actual capacity right to create. New life. And so Jesus wants to highlight this oneness that is physical and spiritual, earthly and divine. It's this incredibly high view, right, of marriage that Jesus presents. It's not just a contract or a relationship or a means to reproduce. What Genesis tells us is that marriage images a God who is relational and loving and a creator. And so part of our calling, the meaning of our existence is that as human beings, as humanity, we are to image God by making lifelong promises of love and a relationship to one another in marriage. It is not the only way to image the covenant love of God, but that is its meaning, its ultimate purpose. So, let me just put a cap on that. In other words, what Jesus is highlighting when he says, go back to the beginning, he's saying, in other words, marriage is a symbol It is a sacrament, you know, a physical sign of a greater spiritual reality. It is a picture whose purpose is to point us to God and His beautiful, good, relational, self-giving love. That is the purpose of marriage. And Jesus says, if you get that, if you get that, you will get the meaning of marriage. So that means marriage is not just about a man and a woman, and it is absolutely not meant to be broken. And certainly not for any and every cause. God, in other words, this is why he is not, he does not desire divorce. Because this is what marriage means. Now, in light of all that, we might ask, because of the the passages that we've read, well, then why does God give laws for divorce that govern divorce? If he doesn't desire it, if it's so uh, destructive and detrimental to to the meaning of marriage and to human existence. Why would God give laws like that? Interesting, that's exactly what the crowd around Jesus, the religious leaders around Jesus ask in Matthew 19. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus' answer to that question is this. The reason those commands, which are not actually commands, he says, the reason those are in the Bible is because of your hardness of of heart. He says, Moses gave allowances. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the, what, beginning, it was not so. It was not God's design or intent. So, with all that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says about divorce. But I say to you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce violates the oneness, is what Jesus says. That's what's at the heart of what he's saying here. And he wants us to see how destructive that really is because of what marriage means. And this has huge implications for us as followers of Jesus as far as how we think about marriage and divorce and remarriage that will impact all of us. And so I think it's important. Let me kind of boil down what Jesus is saying constitutes divorce for us as followers of Jesus who who want to live in faithful obedience to the way of Jesus. And there are generally two views that faithful Christians have held in trying to interpret what Jesus is saying here in terms of answering this question. What qualifies as grounds for divorce according to Jesus? The first view is that adultery or sexual infidelity alone serve as grounds for divorce. Adultery and sexual infidelity is the only grounds for divorce according to Matthew five thirty-two. Now those who hold this view would say, of course, there are other reasons a couple might separate. For example, uh, domestic violence or some other abusive situation or neglect that, that separation should happen, but as far as biblical grounds for divorce, the only valid reason would be sexual unfaithfulness. Now, again, Tim Mackey highlights reasons this view has some weaknesses, and I agree, namely because This view does not account for the whole teaching of the Bible. Mackey says this. He says, it's important to remember that Jesus gives us this statement about divorce within the context of a debate about a specific uh, concept or phrase in Hebrew. This idea of displeasing and and indecency, right? He is not, in other words, giving an exhaustive teaching on divorce, and he makes it clear that his understanding of indecency means adultery and that that is grounds for divorce. In other words, Jesus' view is that adultery is grounds for divorce, and with that view, who is Jesus standing up for? Who is Jesus seeking justice for? In this position, he's standing against oppressive and abusive treatment of women, he says, no, a man cannot divorce a woman for any reason. That is unloving and unjust, and it goes against God's character and his created purpose for marriage. But he doesn't address other specific unjust reasons, for example, neglect or abuse of a spouse, which are addressed elsewhere in the Bible. And so this is why I think the second way of understanding what Jesus is saying that serves as grounds for divorce is the most compelling. And the second view is this that adultery and sexual infidelity, neglect or abuse, based on Exodus 21 and abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7:15, are grounds for divorce. So I think this second view is more faithful to the whole teaching of scripture and accounts for the meaning of marriage as well as the justice and mercy of God. And so again, the bottom line, to boil it down, the bottom line is that Jesus rejects a view of marriage that is based on the idea that marriage exists ultimately to please men. Right? That's, that's what he rejects in this debate. And Jesus says that the view of marriage through the lens of culture, this view of marriage through the lens of culture in his day is wrong. It is not faithful to God's design for humanity because marriage exists to image the covenant love of God. Let me just say that again, because I think this is very pertinent for a lot of the discussion and debate in our own day about marriage and sex and gender. Jesus is making it clear that the view of marriage that we are to live by, if we take our cues from culture, we'll get it wrong that we are called to be faithful to God's design for humanity because marriage exists ultimately to image the covenant love of God. Okay, so I know we've covered a lot of ground there. Let me just end by saying um, what this means for us. What it means for us when it comes to marriage and divorce. And I want to address kind of different categories of people as you're sitting here that this might be relevant to your life in particular and the the first um, category I want to address is singleness so if you're single I think what Jesus is saying here actually has a lot to speak into your life later in Matthew 19 Jesus says uh, that there are some people who will never get married who will never have sex who will never reproduce either because of the way they were born so Jesus accounts for that reality or because they choose to live that way. So out of their own choice, they choose not to get married, not to have sex. And he says that they do that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus himself falls into that second category, right? He never married, never had sex, never had children, and yet, yet, Jesus lived the most fulfilling life of any human in history. See, Jesus... He says the purpose of life is not to get married and have kids. Sometimes in the church we miss uh, we miss this, right? Jesus is saying the purpose of life is not to get married and have kids. The purpose of life is not happiness or our own pleasure. The purpose of life, right, is to live for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we can fulfill that purpose when we become living images of God through becoming like his son in our character and living according to his truth and for some people that means getting married because it's a covenant symbol of that reality but jesus makes it clear it's not the only way to symbol that reality jesus was the first religious teacher in history that elevated the role of unmarried single life to be an honorable meaningful way of life being single In other words, whether you are 25 or 75 in the community of faith around Jesus is not second class or strange. Jesus says something incredibly radical here. He says, you don't need to have sex to have a beautiful, fulfilled, and meaningful life. Let me just say that again. Jesus actually makes the claim that you don't ever have to have sex to have a beautiful, fulfilled, and meaningful life. In our cultural moment, that is insanity. Post that on Twitter and see what happens, right? Because we live in a world that says the opposite, don't we? You can't live a fulfilled life without expressing your sexuality. And Jesus says you can. And the question is, do we believe him? Do we believe him? So singleness, married. If you're married, I think so much of what we've talked about today invites you to ask the question, how do I actually think about my marriage and the the meaning of my marriage? Jesus says it's not just about your happiness or your desires. Your marriage, with all its physical and emotional and spiritual oneness, is a self-giving covenant sign of God's love to the world. Have you ever thought about your marriage that way? As followers of Jesus, you have experienced the love of God, and you're called to be living icons of that love to the world. So that means the most important thing that you can do, married couples hear this, the most important thing that you can do to have a vital, beautiful, fulfilling marriage is follow Jesus, to be with him, become like him, and live and his way of life. That's the greatest thing you can do for your marriage. I will tell you, about five years ago, Langley and I were in a terrible place in our marriage. Um, without going into a lot of detail, we, we essentially had lost trust in each other. We were angry with one another. We had hurt one another, and we were incredibly frustrated. And honestly, without Christ in our lives and the Holy Spirit doing some deep, deep healing in each of us, I'm absolutely convinced we would be divorced today. And I tell you that because I know some of you in this room are struggling in your marriage right now. And I just want to tell you, remember, remember what your marriage is. Your marriage is a living sign, right, of God's love and grace to you. And I know it doesn't feel that way sometimes, but I want to tell you, don't give up. He is with you, and Jesus can bring healing and restore intimacy and trust and bring joy into your marriage because that's what it was created for. And so don't give up. I'm a living testimony to the fact that God can do that. He can bring that into your life and into your marriage. Then I just want to speak as I close, to those of you who have experienced divorce. If you've been through divorce, I hope what we've talked about this morning helps explain the depths of something that you already know, that divorce is devastating and painful. But I hope it helps you understand that it's not just because of what happened relationally or emotionally or psychologically. It's because of what took place spiritually when that oneness was broken. And so I wanna say to you, if you're suffering from the wounds of marriage, from bad choices, from a broken or abusive relationship, first thing I want you to know is that God loves you and that his desire is to heal you and restore you. And I would say this community, Apostles Houston, is a place where that can happen, where that can take place. And so I want to invite you into this place where God can do that through community in your life. I also want to say that if you divorce for reasons other than adultery or abuse or neglect, What Jesus says here calls you to face up to a really hard truth. Jesus says what you've done in violating that oneness goes against God's design for marriage and your life and that you have been disobedient to him. But listen, Jesus' invitation is not to live a life of perfection, but a life of grace, a life of mercy, that is experienced by trusting and following him. In the Bible, that act of turning to trust him and follow him is called repentance. It's saying, God, I went against your design for marriage, and I'm sorry. Forgive me. And Jesus he says to you, you are forgiven because I've dealt with your disobedience and your selfish choices on the cross by giving my life, sacrificing my life out of my love for you. And so this morning, maybe it's a chance in your life to turn and to trust Jesus and to ask for his forgiveness and receive it. Because some of you have been carrying around burdens of unresolved pain and wounds and anger and bitterness from a broken marriage. And that is not God's desire for you. His desire is for you to be healed, to be forgiven, to be restored, and to walk in freedom as image bearers of his love. That's his desire for you. Our prayers you you receive that good news today. Jesus' truth can be hard to hear, but he also brings a message of grace because all of us fall short, and the good news is there is a way back, a way to healing, a way to full lives of singleness, of good marriages, the way of restoration on the other side of divorce. And this is a place where we encounter that Jesus together. The church is not a place where we bear the shame of our sin. Jesus has taken all that This is a place where we know we are forgiven and being made more and more made into his likeness. And so we seek to follow him in the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.